Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. Please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com to make sure you don't miss a single episode. And while our show is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can become part of our team with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. After establishing himself as a college football star in Mississippi, Jim Weatherly moved to Los Angeles to pursue a music career. He eventually found success as a songwriter and is best known for penning the song you just heard, Midnight Train to Georgia, a number one pop and R&B hit for Gladys Knight and the Pips that would go on to be named one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time and earn induction into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Gladys and her Pips recorded a dozen of Weatherly's songs, including the top ten hits Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye, Where Peaceful Waters Flow, Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me, and Love Finds Its Own Way. It was not uncommon for Jim to appear on both the pop and country charts simultaneously with different versions of the same song. Bob Lumen scored a top 10 country hit with Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye, while Ray Price hit the top of the country chart with his version of You're the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me. Price would record nearly 40 Jim Weatherly songs, including the top five hits Like Old Times Again and Roses and Love Songs. Thanks in part to Ray Price's success, Jim was named ASCAP's Country Songwriter of the Year in 1974. Additional hits from the Weatherly Songbook include Charlie Pride's number one single, Where Do I Put Her Memory, Ed Bruce's top five hit, You Turn Me On Like a Radio, Glenn Campbell's top five, A Lady Like You, and Brian White's number one single, Someone Else's Star. Other artists who've recorded Jim's songs include Eddie Arnold, Reba McIntyre, Dean Martin, Vince Gill, Etta James, Neil Diamond, Bill Anderson, Kenny Rogers, Hall Notes, The Temptations, Garth Brooks, Kenny Chesney, Peter Cetera, and Angie Stone. As an artist, Jim earned a top 10 pop hit with Need to Be and a top 10 country hit with I'll Still Love You. The Grammy nominee and Dove Award winner was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006 and the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2014. Well, when it comes to securing and scheduling our guests for the Songcraft podcast, there's a lot of different ways we go about it. Sometimes we'll speak to a publicist. Sometimes we'll actually have a personal relationship with the, with the writer themselves, or we'll, we'll draw on a relationship that we have from, from life and career. This particular episode with Jim Weatherly comes from, from a different source. Yes, I began sowing the seeds of this Songcraft guest many, many years ago when I was a uh, junior high school student. I was... The official and exclusive Jim Weatherly lawn boy. I mowed his grass. <laughs> <laughs> Landscape architect, I think, is the phrase that we like to That's use That's the now. politically correct yeah. term now. Back in those days, they just called yeah. it the, uh, the lawn boy. The lawn boy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, my Jim Weatherly and his wife, uh, Cynthia, they moved uh, into my neighborhood. The, they literally lived on the street uh, right behind the street that I grew up on. So their, their house was right behind ours. And uh, yeah, when they moved in, I was a, an enterprising young, young fella. And I saw a new, I saw a new mark. Hey, right. I'm going to go over there and see if they need somebody to mow their yard because they can't have lined that up yet. They just moved in. So you right. know, sometimes it pays to be, uh, you know, to be a go-getter. Well, yeah, let, let's let that be a message to, to the teenage listeners of the Songcraft podcast. Yeah, we you don't ne- have any of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to both of you. For, um, for you in your car right there while your mom or dad is listening. Yeah. <laughs> Keep mowing those lawns. You never know that you might interview that person one day and talk about their career. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm sure you, young 15-year-old, are super interested in that as a future. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think probably because of that relationship that you have with Jim going way back is, is why this was you, – you didn't need me on this interview this is just you and jim having the conversation well i mean i don't know that i ever really need you uh (laughs) but i do enjoy having you uh as part of these conversations i have to say another message to our listeners just turn it off now (laughs) this this one without me this one's gonna go nowhere when when you're not there it's just not the same it's not the same but this i mean jim jim was a great interview it's and plus these songs man like i 
I mean, I, I have I have a real thing for Gladys Knight. Just her, her voice always does something to me. Just like it can always pull the emotion right out of me. And realizing that Jim basically wrote every one of these songs that has meant something to me yeah. uh, for decades is pretty awesome to listen to him talk about them. Yeah, and such a humble, low-key guy. He just kind of does what he does, you know, plugs away at his craft and yeah. uh, isn't flashy or, or braggadocious or anything like that. And, and just a, a cool guy to, to kind of be around and, and listen to his stories. So I hadn't seen Jim since the days when I used to, to mow his grass all those years ago. So it's it kind of fun to reconnect with him. And he's moved to a much larger house now with a much bigger yard. So I don't think I could have even. But you'd uh, like that job back yeah, now. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I could handle it. It'd be too much. Well, before we get into this uh, conversation with Jim, you know, we have a little something else to do. Uh, now that we have these Patreon supporters, we have another shout out to give today. To Jenny Winston. Yes, our good friend, Our, by our the friend, way. Jenny Winston. Jenny Winston. It's great to have uh, supporters of the show who are also personal friends. Yeah. I believe uh, you actually double-dated, uh, went to prom, not with Jenny, but but you and your date went with Jenny and her date. That's right. And uh, so that's how far Jenny goes back. In, All the way in back. The, so she's part of the Songcraft family. So we love you, Jenny. Thank you for Thanks. listening, for being a great friend. Mostly, but also for your support. It's it's really cool. And even though, Jenny, we've known you for a long time, I, I for one, am sorry that Scott never had the chance to mow your family's lawn. Yeah, because then we could have interviewed you, but uh, <laughs> those seeds were never sown, so oh well. And in case you're wondering about what we're talking about when we say Patreon, uh, Patreon is a way that you can get involved in supporting what we're doing here at Songcraft with small monthly donations that really help us cover our costs and, and keep bringing you the shows that we love bringing you. So if you go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Songcraft Show, then you can see what it's all about. We have some cool gifts and uh, tiers of sponsorship. And one of the things you can get is a shout out on the show. Yeah, just like you heard right there for, for Jenny Winston. And uh, it, it really is a brand new thing for us. We've just launched this Patreon thing. We're, uh, we're in, the, in the infancy stages and definitely trying to grow it. So we do appreciate uh, if, you, if you listen to the show, if you enjoy the show, if it's uh, something that you have uh, come to rely on as part of your entertainment slash uh, education experience in the podcast world, um, definitely go check it out and, and see if it's something that you want to get uh, involved in. We'd love to, to grow our, our patron support base for sure. But in the meantime, don't go check it out just yet. Uh, we've got this fantastic interview here with uh, Jim Weatherly. So Paul, normally you're the guy that says, hey, should we check it out? But I'm going to hijack that and say, hey, wow. let's check this out. I, I-, I quit. <laughs> Jim, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Now, you grew up in Mississippi writing songs and playing in bands, but I know that you were also uh, a very successful football player, uh, earning a scholarship to the University of Mississippi, where you were an all-Southeastern Conference quarterback. Now, typically, you have kind of the music guys on one hand and the athletes on the other hand, but you were really... One guy who embodied both of these, yeah. these talents. Um, did you ever feel kind of pulled between your your musical talents and your athletic talents? No, I, I never did. Um, I enjoyed doing them both, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do both. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people thought it was kind of weird for a a, a college quarterback to uh, play in a rock and roll band, but. I didn't do that when I was playing football. I didn't do it for about two seasons, and then I only did it in the summer or, yeah. or after the season. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't consistent, you know. It was just something we'd pick up here and there, you know. But uh, Coach Vaught, who was the head coach, gave me his blessing. Yeah. I mean, he's, I think he knew that, uh, there was some talent there. Yeah. And uh, he was interested in every facet of his players' lives, not just huh. uh, not just the football aspect. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in 1966, after college, you moved to Los Angeles with, with your band, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was kind of the goal there? Was it let let's go out and see if we can get a record deal, or, or why why go to L.A. at that point? Well, I had gone to L.A. 
when I was in college, after I'd finished my football career, I went out to do Shindig, oh, yeah. that TV show. Sure. And um, that was the first time I'd been to L.A., but just meeting the people, seeing what was going on in L.A., how great the music was. Yeah. I just thought this is where we have to be if we're going to ever have any shot at success. Yeah. And that's basically the reason we went out. Yeah. Now, were you already writing your own songs at that point? Yeah, I started writing when I was 13. Wow. Tw 12 or 13, you know, just things that, like I'd hear on the radio, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I just kept doing it because I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it, you yeah. know. What were some of your influences? What was, what was some of the music that captured your attention that you wanted to try to aspire to be like? Well, the, the whole reason I got interested in music and in songs was when I first heard Elvis. Sure. Uh, being in Mississippi, we heard a lot of the rockabilly stuff that came out of Memphis. And I fell in love with rockabilly. Yeah. I loved it. And Elvis was my main influence. Matter of fact, uh, he is the main reason I'm in the music business. Sure. You know? I, I was influenced by a lot of the other acts, too. Uh, I mean, it, it, they're really, you know, whoever they were at, yeah. at the time, you know, from Ray Charles to Jackie Wilson to Pat Boone to, yeah. uh, you know, the Shirelles. I mean, I loved it all. Yeah. I loved it all. Uh, I, I didn't get into country until really later on, but I'd always had, I don't know, just some of the things that I wrote just always seemed to come out country. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Some of that Mississippi background just yeah. in your blood, I guess. Yeah. Well, so you, you get to L.A. and... Talk about, I know that eventually you got signed to RCA Records, but that was a pretty good while after you first got to L.A. So talk a bit about what you were doing and, and pursuing as an artist and writer, you know, for that time span in between before you got that first record deal. Well, when we went to L.A., the band stayed together for about four years. Right. And we played all the local clubs that were big at that time yeah. in, in LA and we we became a really well-known group we we played a lot of hollywood parties um things like that but after 4 years you kind of start saying well you know are we ever going to make it right you know and the band started having differences of opinion on songs and which direction to go and what to do and things like that. So um, when the band split up, I was just looking for something to do with my songs. Yeah. You know? And I had met Jim Neighbors through Lee Majors. <laughs> and and uh, Jim had told me if I ever wanted a job writing songs to call him. Huh. So when the band split up, I called him, and I just said, were you serious? And he said, yeah. So I made a deal with him and uh, wrote for two and a half years. I saved some money yeah. during that time. And then continued to look for that key person right, to champion my songs. Yeah. You know? And they, it was hard to find because... Uh, they're a rarity sure. in the business to find one person who totally believes 100% right. in what you do and is willing to put his career and life on the line for you. Right. After, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe around 1970-71, I found him. Hmm. There's a guy named Larry Gordon. Yeah. And Larry uh, signed me to a publishing deal. Uh, I just believed in what he had to say and what his goals were. Yeah. And he made everything happen. Well, and, and around that same time, you were signed to RCA Records, which Well, released... he got me the deal. Oh, he did. At yeah. RCA. Yeah. yeah. 
So he gets you this deal. You, you sign with RCA Records, and, and you release an album simply called Weatherly in yeah. 1972. Um, now, the single, uh, Loving You Is Just an Old Habit, got some attention for you as an artist. But, uh, of course, one of the other songs on that record, Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye, became Gladys Knight and the Pips's final hit single for Motown Records, went to number one on the R&B and pop charts, earned them a Grammy for uh, R&B vocal performance. Um, pretty, pretty amazing thing to happen there, you know, right, right out of the gate. What's the story behind that song, and and how did Gladys wind up getting a hold of it? Um, well, writing the song, uh, back in those days, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, you know. I, right. I, I would write from a stream of consciousness, and I'd been to see a movie. I, I'd, I'd been going through some depression as well, Uh and I had been to see a movie, and the movie just kind of added to it, the, mm. the whole emotional feeling of everything. And I sat down on my bed and picked up my guitar when I got home, and I wrote the whole first verse huh. to neither one of us. And I didn't have the title. I didn't have a melody. I didn't have a lyric. I didn't have anything. I just sat down and sang. Right. Sad to think, we're not going to make it. Just fell out of the sky. Wow. And then uh, after I had that first verse, I, I felt it was really a pretty good song, so I finished it. Yeah. You know, took me about 30 minutes or so wow, to write yeah. the song. Yeah. And then we put it on my first album, and I'd always thought it was a country song. I sure. mean, you know, uh, it had a little country groove to it and everything on, the, on my first album. Right. But Larry pitched the song to Joe Porter, who was uh, Motown had hired to do a new album on Gladys. Yeah. And Joe heard the song and loved it. And fortunately, he was able to hear through a little country demo to hear <laughs> what the song could be. Yeah. So they cut it on Gladys. Gladys and the Pips loved it too. They just, they thought it was great. And they put that R&B, that universal kind of R&B spin on it. Right. And made it, something bigger than I ever thought. Well, you mentioned, you know, you kind of thought of it as being this country song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, soon after Bob Lumen had a, a top 10 country record with, with his version of it. Um, and that really kind of set this pattern in a lot of ways for the rest of your career as this genre spanning songwriter that would have hits, you know, in the, in the country field in the pop field in the R and B field, adult contemporary. It was kind of like you were able to, to branch out, um, and have all the success in, in different areas. As a songwriter, um, when you are, are going through the, the creative process, do you think about genres? Do you think about what category this, this or that song might fall into? Well, not necessarily. If I start writing and it just has a country feel to it, then I just accept it as country. Yeah. Or I might diddle with it a little bit and see if it can be um, more more universal. But most of the time I hear that stuff in my head before I start doing it, and I know whether it's country or R&B or yeah. pop or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes the title dictates, you know, where where to go with it. Well, you experienced your, your first number one country single in 1973 with Ray Price's version of You're the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me. If anyone should ever write my life story For whatever reason there might be You'd be there between each line of pain and glory. Cause you're the best thing 
that ever happened to me. And then that went on to be a, a top 40 R&B hit for The Persuaders, a, a number one R&B and top five pop hit for Gladys Knight and The Pips. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how that song came about. Well, when I was writing You're the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me, it was just one of those things I fell into. I'd never, I couldn't remember ever hearing a title. Hmm. You're the best thing you ever And I, I thought, what an obvious title yeah. for a song. And um, as I was writing that song, I was writing it with Ray Price in mind. Okay, That's the only song I've ever written with an artist in mind that's actually cut the song. Right, right. I never assumed it would be an R&B record. Hmm. You know, but I didn't know that the kind of songs that I was writing were that adaptable yeah to pop and r&b and and what you call what you used to call standards sure yeah you know, by the standard artists like frankie lane cut that song right. dean martin cut it johnny mathis johnny mathis cut neither one of us i mean there were a lot of people like that yeah that were covering some of those songs yeah so they covered not only a, a wide range of genres but also a wide range of artists from, right for artists that were that making records in the 40s and 50s right well uh, to me what's remarkable is you know ray price has this this big hit single with you're the best thing that ever happened to me but then he puts out an album of the same title and every single song on that record was a jim weatherly song including uh additional titles that became hit singles for ray like storms of troubled times and uh like a first time thing mm-hmm. now i mean this is a pretty rare thing to have an artist cut an entire album's worth of of songs by by one writer now how the heck did that come about well ray was looking to change his direction from the honky-tonk artist that he had always been he he wanted to uh record songs that at the time they called them cosmopolitan country right you know and I, I, I really always kind of viewed Ray as country's Frank Sinatra. Yeah, sure. Ray had that real legitimate kind of voice, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he just liked my songs. I, I was writing in those kind of songs that could yeah. go in a lot of different directions. Sure. And uh, he decided to do an album, and I was I was as surprised as anybody. Right. You right. know, but it as it turned out, he continued to record my songs. He right. he cut thirty eight of my songs. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, I was I, I was a, I was still basically a writer off the streets when right. this happened. You know, it right. was within within a two year two or three year period of yeah. after Larry signed me. So I went from being looking for a deal, hoping somebody would like my songs to to having thirty eight of my songs cut by Ray Price. I mean right. that's uh that that was overwhelming. I'm sure. I mean I was I was honored and yeah. I I you know, I loved it. But yeah. Yeah. Uh it was something I'd beyond my wildest dreams, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well and by the time that, that album came out that, that Ray did, um by that point, you had released three LPs as an artist uh, yourself for RCA, um, and quite a few of those songs that that Ray recorded were songs that were on, mm-hmm. you know, your records. Um, another song that came off one of your records, your second album, uh, is "Where Peaceful Waters Flow," which Gladys Knight and the Pips took to the top uh, forty on the pop charts and the top ten on the R and B chart uh, in 1973. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, you had kind of written many of these songs for your own voice. Uh, but once you see Ray and, and Gladys starting to have all the success with your music, did that affect your writing process in terms of starting to think about how this artist or, or that artist might sound when doing a song as opposed to just, you know, writing a song and thinking of yourself as singing it? No, no, it didn't affect me. Um I wrote what I felt, and I was fortunate enough to have artists feel the same thing. Yeah. Um, I never, 
I never really wrote to ha for what I, I I mean I felt the songs could be hits yeah but it wasn't like if you if somebody else had to cut those songs they might not even got off the ground right you know what I'm saying I was fortunate to have the right artist yeah at the right times doing my songs and and making them totally believable sure you know for me that was the key to my writing yeah somebody to make them to feel them the way I felt them when I was writing them, make them making them believable. Well, one of your best known songs, of course, Midnight Train to Georgia, uh, began life as I understand it as Midnight Plane to Houston on your first LP. And she's I've heard that the original idea came after a phone conversation that you had with Farrah Fawcett of Charlie's Angels fame. Uh, I would love to hear the story behind that song. I was friends with Lee Majors, and Lee had just started dating Farrah. Hmm. She had just moved to town from Texas. And one day I called Lee, and Farrah answered the phone. And just while we were talking, she, she mentioned that she was packing her clothes. She was going to take the midnight plane to Houston to visit her family. Yeah. Of course, for a songwriter, when you hear somebody say something like that, it, it really sets off a little thing in your mind, you know? Yeah. So when I got off the phone, I wrote this little song, which I thought, again, was a little kind of country, cosmopolitan country song. Right. Called Midnight Plane to Houston. And I thought it, you know, I really thought it would have would be a good song for Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Because Glenn was having all those big records with Galveston and Wichita Lineman and right. Phoenix and stuff like that. But um, we got a call from Atlanta. My, my publisher got a call from Atlanta from Sonny Limbo, who was going to produce an album on um, Sissy Houston, hmm. who was Whitney's mother. Right. And... Uh, they they loved the song, but they told us they would really like to have a more R&B sounding title. Right. And they asked us if we mind if, 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 if they changed it to Midnight Train to Georgia. At first, my uh, publisher argued with them, said, no, no, we don't want that. It stays what it is. Yeah. Because I'd already cut it as, as Midnight Plane to Houston. Sure. So finally, they persisted, and, and Larry just gave in and said, okay, go ahead. But there were stipulations, you know, no writers, no publishing, right? no right. credit, yeah, nothing. If you want to do it that way with those that stipulation, go ahead. Yeah. So they recorded it as Midnight Train to Georgia, and... Uh, it was a nice record. Yeah, it was a nice record. It was a, to me, it was a cross between country and R and B. Right, the way they did it, and Gladys had already heard Midnight Plane to Houston. We had pitched that to her. And, yeah, and um, she told me later. She said, "We would have cut that song either way." Uh, right. She said, "We all loved it." Yeah, we loved it. Uh, so we sent her the Midnight Train to Georgia version, and she said, well, that makes more sense for us because we're from Atlanta. Right. And also, Midnight Train to Georgia opened it up for a lot of those really nice background parts right. that the Pips came up with. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, something I never dreamed of. Right, you right. Know? And it's my understanding they cut three different tracks on it. And uh, the first two, Gladys turned down. She wasn't there when they cut the tracks. Right. And she turned them down. She said, no, 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 no. That's, it's just not the way I hear it. It's, it's more like uh, an Al Green kind of groove. Yeah. You know, blah, 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 blah. So before they went in and cut the third track, they all went in a little back room and listened to Al Green records huh. to get a groove. Yeah. And then came back and cut the... Cut the version that Gladys loved. Yeah. I was leaving, leaving. Oh, I 
And they turned it into, again. They turned it into a worldwide, yeah, hit record. You know, yeah. something that uh, I, I knew the song had possibilities, but that was something I didn't think about. Yeah, yeah. Number one pop, number one R and B on the list of Rolling Stones' greatest songs of all time. I mean, well, another thing too was when the. Uh, RIAA and the National Endowment for the Arts got together and selected the 365 songs of the century. Yeah. Midnight Train to Georgia was number 29. Wow. Between I Want to Hold Your Hand and Imagine (laughs) by John Lennon. Yeah. I'm wondering, when you write a song like that, that is, it takes on a life of its own, it becomes Mm -hmm. this iconic um, thing, does that kind of success uh, impact your songwriting career in, in ways that maybe surprised you or that you didn't anticipate? Well, it surely gave me more credibility. Hmm. And I had people cutting my bad songs. <laughs> right. You know, uh, that's what it did for me. I had people cutting some good songs too. Yeah. But, but, but what I'm saying is, once once you have a hit like that, everybody wants you to write. Everybody wants to record one of your songs right. or something like that. You know. Yeah. 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 But it it didn't change the way I wrote. I never tried to write another Midnight Train to Georgia. Yeah. I, you know that that's a once in a lifetime thing. And, sure. You know, who wants to copy something you've already written? Well, your three albums for RCA that you did, we've discussed, um, but those continued to provide charting singles for artists like Bob Lumen and Red Steagall, who hit the country charts in 1974 with Just Enough to Make Me Stay and The Finer Things in Life, uh, respectively. Um, and around the same time, Gladys Knight and the Pips charted with their version of uh, Between Her Goodbye and My Hello, mm-hmm. which had first appeared as Between His Goodbye and My Hello on your debut RCA mm-hmm. record. Um, how did you feel about the fact that it was not your own versions of these songs that were becoming the hits? I was glad. I I I, I write songs yeah. to be recorded different ways. As a matter of fact... I've recorded, well, I recorded Midnight Plane to Houston, and then I've, on my own albums, I've recorded Midnight Train to Georgia three different times Yeah, with different arrangements. Right. And one of the arrangements I did is a ballad, hmm. and it sounds kind of like a Southern anthem. Yeah. And Neil Diamond covered that. Hmm. I mean, did a great job. Yeah. And it it's a whole different song. You hear it differently, yeah, as a yeah. ballad than you do is in the in the rock R and B version, right? Yeah. So um, I never really cut a record to be a hit. Hmm. I cut it the way I heard it, and if it became a hit, great. Well, in 1979, Charlie Pride covered uh, "Where Do I Put Her Memory," which became a, a number one country hit, a song right. that it, again had come off uh, one of your records. Big hit for Charlie. Tell us about that song. Well, there really is not any great story to that song, except um, I was just looking around the room one day, and there was a little um, dent in the wall. Hmm. And then I looked over to dress her, and I just got to thinking, you know, like, uh, you know, I've taken down all of her pictures, cleaned out all of the drawers painted over the scratches of all of our little wars right you know and it just one thing led to another and then i didn't have the title i was just kind of like on a roll you know yeah and then i got to the part where the chorus came in i said you know everything's in it play in its place except her memory yeah 
Now, where do I put her? So um, I thought it was an honest emotion. Yeah. I thought it was something people could relate to. Sure. And it was a country song. Yeah. That was one that, that well, actually, Gladys cut that, too. Hmm, right. It's on one of her albums. Yeah. And she did it. She actually did that one with a little more of a country feel. Yeah. Gladys had always said that she loved country music. And she loved taking songs that were country and doing them. Yeah. Her way. Well, another one of those songs from from that era that um, Ray Price turned into a top five country hit was Roses and Love Songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ray then went on to record The Farthest Thing From My Mind and If You Ever Change Your Mind, both top 40 country hits for him. I know that he did at least two more albums that I'm aware of that were entirely mm-hmm. Jim Weatherly songs after that first one we, we talked about. Um you know, I, I think of Glenn Campbell, and he had Jimmy Webb, who was right. kind of like providing mm-hmm. the songs. You were kind of Ray Price's Jimmy Webb there at, at, during this period, um, where he was really drawing from your catalog. Mm-hmm. Did you develop a a relationship with him where the two of you would kind of talk about songs and talk about what type of things he was wanting to do, or, or was it sort no, of... No, uh, in L.A., Ray and I had dinner one night, and we just talked about anything and everything. Yeah. Didn't talk that much about songs, you know. But that was really the only time that I really uh, sat down with Ray and, and, and had a discussion. Huh. He would just, uh, he just wanted to hear my songs, when, yeah. whatever we had, and, and Larry kept sending them to him. Yeah, yeah. But we never, uh, we never really discussed songs. Huh, yeah, interesting. Um, in 1979 and, and 1980, uh, you hit the country charts again as an artist and writer with the top 40 singles, Smooth Sailing and A Gift from Missouri. Um, somewhere in there, I'm not exactly sure when, you relocated from Los Angeles to Nashville. And I'm, I'm curious what, what kind of prompted that move. Starting in, in the, somewhere in the early 80s, music started to change in L.A. a little bit. And then as it, it went on toward the 90s, it changed even more. Yeah. And uh, a lot of my friends were moving back to Nashville. And I had always wanted to come back to the South anyway. Right. Being, being raised in Mississippi, I, I, I didn't want to stay in L.A. all my life. Right. So it gave me an opportunity to... to uh, move back yeah at first i had a condo here so i'd go back and forth sure and then uh then finally i I bought a house here and sold my house in la and moved on back and yeah um when'd you move move to nashville 88 or 89 okay somewhere like that i'd been in la for 25 years you know one thing i wanted to ask you about and and i imagine this was in that era when you were kind of going back and forth between nashville and la um in 1985 Ed Bruce uh, landed in the country top five with You Turn Me On Like a Radio, which you wrote with Bob McDill. You turn me on like a radio Baby, then you play my soft and low You know how to make the music flow Deep in my soul, baby You know just how to keep the signal strong Every song we've talked about so far, everything that, that you had had a hit with so far, you wrote uh, solo. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you kind of got into collaborating after all those years of writing by yourself and if that, if that was kind of a, an adjustment for you to begin to get into that mode. Well, uh, and it, it was an adjustment because most of the writers in Nashville were craftsmen. Right. I wasn't really a craftsman. I was a... I don't know what I was, a writer or something. I don't know, songwriter. But I, when, I was, when I would co-write with writers here, I would see that they had kind of a little sheet of directions. Right. Not literally, but yeah. in their mind. And uh, I began to pick up some of the things they did, even though I was still you know, writing like I always did. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of flowed with me for a while. Uh, Bob 
McDill, one of my favorite co-writers, yeah. was, was the guy I learned the most from. Huh. I mean, he really had crafting a song down to a science. Right. And, and he would hold me to that. You know, he yeah. didn't let me get away with things. He, <laughs> I'd come up with a line or something. He'd say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, well, well, then I'd try to explain it, and right. I couldn't explain right, it. Right, right. Now i got to defend it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I'd come up with a line, he'd say, well, it's not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so... Tell uh, it like it is. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciated, uh, you know, his uh, his advice, his help, his his dry humor. Right. You know? Yeah, and yeah. I, I learned an awful lot from him. yeah. Well, and, and you turned me on like a radio. I think went to number three on the Billboard country charts. And the same week that that peaked at number three, Gus Hardin and Earl Thomas Conley's version of "All Tangled Up in Love," which you also uh, wrote with Bob, was mm -hmm. sitting at number eight. Two songs in the in the country top ten in mm -hmm. the same week. Right, uh, I think speaks to the fact that there was a real chemistry between the two of you guys that that worked. Right. You know? Well, both of those ideas were my ideas. Mm-hmm. But Bob made them uh, acceptable for country radio. Right. I mean, I just kind of watched what he did and, yeah, you know, contributed when I felt I could. Right. You know, that kind of thing. But yeah. um, he, he, he's the most finely tuned writer I ever worked with. Well, in early 1985, uh, Glenn Campbell had a country hit with A Lady Like You, which he wrote with, with Keith Stegall. softly by my side I look at you and I'm mystified And what did I ever do to win a lady like you How'd that one come together? I actually wrote that song, started writing that song for Cynthia. Hmm. Your wife. We, she was driving me into Nashville one day and she was talking about her grandparents and uh, I just kind of looked at her she was talking and she just had this very sweet look about her and and uh, a lady like you popped into mine yeah so uh, I was on my way to a writing session right with Keith Stegall, and right. I told him the idea, and uh, he was at the keyboard. Yeah. And he just started off with this nice melody, and he said, Here I am, just an ordinary man. And I said, My virtues are few. And I'm amazed every morning when I wake. I mean, it. we just both knew what that song was about. Right. You right. know, and... It it's a beautiful song. Yeah. I, I I really surprised that people haven't really covered that song because yeah. it's a really fine love song. Yeah, sure is. And and it was Glenn's last number one record. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the mid to late eighties, you had a lot of charting singles cut by artists such as Carl Jackson, Jim Collins, uh, Tim Malchek, Canyon, Grey Ghost, Marie Osmond, uh, primarily lower charting songs. Uh, but then in the early summer of 1995, Brian White, uh, all the way up to number one with Someone Else's Star, which you uh, had written with Skip Ewing. I guess I must be wishing on someone else's star. Seems like someone else keeps getting what I'm wishing for. Why can't I be as lucky as those other people are? I guess I must be wishing on someone else's star. By this point, you had been writing, well, you'd been writing songs practically all your life. You'd been having hit songs for over 20 years at that point. Um, and even beyond that point, you've continued to write, continued to record albums on your own label. Um, how do songwriters stay fresh and, and basically keep from running out of ideas after all these years of, of creating music? Well, I don't know about other writers. 
I was having lunch with Bob McDill the other day, and uh, I asked him, you know, why he why why he chose to retire. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, I just didn't have anything else to say." And I I found that very interesting because I, I don't think of myself as not having anything to say because I'll take a song that I've already written and twist the idea around and say it another way. Yeah. So I just keep doing things like that along with uh, coming up with different ideas. Yeah. yeah. Different um, ways of saying things, different titles, different emotions. Right. Um, I just seem to always have a bunch of songs. Well, in the early 1990s, Vince Gill uh, recorded the songs Love Never Broke Anyone's Heart and If I Didn't Have You in My World, which uh, the two of you wrote together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the spring of 2001, Peter Cetera had a hit on the adult contemporary chart with The Perfect World, which you wrote with him. Mm-hmm. Um, How is collaborating with an artist um, different than collaborating with more of a behind-the-scenes type of songwriter? Well, with Vince... I was pretty much in tune with what Vince did. Yeah. You know, there's some writer, there's some artists that um, it's been kind of hard to write with. Yeah. You know, but Vince is really easy to write with. He, he, he has an easy way of falling into a song. Yeah. Um, Love Never Broke Anyone's Heart. And if I didn't have you in my world were, were both my titles, my mm-hmm. ideas. But I let Vince take control and yeah. kind of do the what he wanted to do melodically and, you know, where he wanted to go. And the, both of those ser- songs turned out really, really good. Peter Cetera uh, was, was harder to write with because Peter has a way of singing and a way of phrasing that belongs to him and nobody else. Right. And so whenever I would try to come up with something melodically or rhythmically or something, he said, no, it's not, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. You right, know? And then, right. And then he would think about it, and he would come up with something, you know. That that song mainly started off with a guitar riff that I had. Yeah. Da-da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, you know. Um and and we took that guitar riff and and he uh, came up with a melody around that guitar riff. Right. Yeah. And it was a great record, great yeah. song. Michael yeah. O'Mardian cut it on him. Right. Yeah. It was a good experience, even yeah. though I had a little trouble getting started. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> always uh, always up to to stretch into new challenges. Well, you wrote a song um, that just happens to be kind of one of my favorites. Um, on one of your RCA albums called Jesus is My Kind of People. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's never been a big hit, but it's been cut by mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people. You know, un- Not surprisingly, Gladys Knight and Ray mm-hmm. Price, of course, have both cut it, but Etta James cut it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Several gospel artists have cut it. I mean, it's one of those songs that kind of keeps cropping up. Yeah. Uh, what inspired you to write that? I'd seen it on a bumper sticker. Huh. Yeah. Jesus is my kind of people. And it, it 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 just stayed with me. And then one day I sat down and I said, uh, once I felt like a lonely sailor lost on the raging sea. And it just kind of snowballed. Yeah. Into Jesus is my kind of people. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was kind of a way of talking at that time. Sure. Back yeah. in those days. He's my kind of people, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and I had always liked gospel music anyway. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the songs I write can be recorded secular or as a gospel or Christian song. Right. You're the best thing that ever happened to me is a great example of that. Yeah. The Reverend James Cleveland cut that song as Jesus. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. Right. And it's been cut by numerous gospel artists. Yeah. Since then. Yeah. So it became, it's kind of a gospel classic. Right. And there are other songs I've written that, that have that same kind of thing where if you want to do it as a, as a gospel song, you can do it that way. Right, right. And it works that way. Yeah. Well, looking back over your long and, and successful career, you have had hits 
as we've discussed, in virtually every genre. Uh, you've been inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. You've been inducted into the National Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York. Um, is there anything that you've not done yet musically that you'd still like to accomplish? Well, I've never won a Grammy. Yeah. I was nominated. Yeah. But uh, that was the year that Stevie Wonder won everything. <laughs> right. As a matter of fact, the next year, Paul Simon won something for the uh, song or something. Right. And he thanked Stevie Wonder for not putting out an album that year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, no, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, it would have been nice yeah. to do that, but. Uh, I don't dwell on it. Yeah. I, I, I'm really satisfied with the things I've done, the people I've met, the people I've worked with, and the artists that have cut my songs. You know, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I could ask for another thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you are a a man who is very comfortable in his own skin and and knows who he is as an artist and a, a poet and a songwriter and. Uh, have somehow managed to avoid getting caught up in a lot of the the trappings I think that come with with success and so it's been an honor just to talk with you and and to talk about some of these great songs that I'm just a fan of and you know this is this has been really cool so for thanks Thank thanks for doing this I appreciate it thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. While Songcraft will always be available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a valued supporter. Thanks for sharing some time with us. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. Too much for the man. So he's leaving the